Thank you. It's an honor and a privilege to be <clears throat> with you again. And uh, actually, the director of the center here in Wasilla is my partner in ministry, Robert Cinnamon, who's here this morning. And uh, I'm with Teen Challenge and uh, glad to serve there and glad to break the Word of God with you this morning. Recently, um, well, it wasn't that recent, actually. I, I uh, in years past, came out one morning and found that, uh, or one evening at a Teen Challenge Center that I had some responsibility over. I kind of showed up there, and rather than having chapel in the evening as we do each night, uh, they were watching a, a movie. And so, I, you know, the staff member was young and he was kind of new, and I took him aside and I said, hey, uh, what's going on here? Uh, you know, and talked to him about worship and the things that will set the guys free. I'm going to make sure that's not my truck. <laughs> I guess it's not. It's already stopped. And uh, so um, I think if I were to talk about what sets people free, whether when I was a pastor and, and had a congregation and, and spoke to them each Sunday and uh, throughout the week as we lived life together or when I've been with Teen Challenge and had a different congregation of, uh, of what, who we call students that are with us, these this morning are the reasons that everything that we do in our Teen Challenge Centers, but more than that, everything I want to do in my life should be about worship. And if I were going to explain to someone um, why Teen Challenge is the way it is, I would say, well, it's really the same reason life is the way it is. And I might say something similar to what I'm going to say to you this morning. So in preparation for that, if you'll please turn to John, the fourth chapter, we're going to go to a familiar passage where, you know, Jesus uh, has gotten in a little uh, trouble with the Pharisees by reputation, and the Bible records for us in the setting of this, uh, of this passage that he's leaving there, leaving Judea to go back to Galilee, and, uh, and um, on the way back, as he's going through Samaria, he gets in a, a talk with a lady and beginning in verse 20, let's read together. Our fathers, Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, or excuse me, she's speaking to him, and you say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what, and we know that we worship for salvation as the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And this morning I want to look at three points that I think are just overwhelming with implications for our lives. And you know, 
the exaltation of God, the, the praise of God, really comes from the manifestation of His love for me, of His love for me and you, because we find our greatest satisfaction in life from God Himself in Jesus Christ. And that satisfaction is so overwhelmingly full that it comes to its fulfillment in praise and worship. And that is why David says in the first chapter of the Psalms, in thy presence is fullness and joy. And so we will find our greatest satisfaction in God. And that comes to its crescendo, to its ultimate fulfillment in praise and worship. In other words, it's not something that we have to do. It's something that we can't help but do because of what we're experiencing in God. And that's a, that's a lofty statement. But I want to unpack with you this morning a little bit the background of, of why that is. And I want you to make the realization that God is not only not indifferent to our joy in Him, but God actually commands your joy in Him again and again throughout Scripture. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever realize that? That He commands your joy in Him? And to do that, I need to break a rule. Because when I was in training to become a preacher, um, Dr. Bishop, my, one of my seminary professors, goes, don't you ever say, well, in the Greek it says this, or in the Hebrew it says that. You're just showing off. And, uh, but this morning it's actually necessary, and I hope uh, you'll forgive me for this. But I need to give you two urgently important biblical words that you can find over and over throughout the Scripture. And the first is found in the Old Testament, where the most common word for worship is hishtahawa. And the reason that's important, or some form of that word, is that it means to bow down. And we find that word in the Old Testament over 171 times. Now that word in the Greek is almost always translated proskuneo. Now, you don't have to know Greek today to get this point, so relax. The point will be clear. But in the Greek New Testament, that word proskuneo has an astonishing usage, and you're going to see why I had to roll it out this morning to you like this, because it, it, it astonished me. And as I listened to John Piper, who I read and heard on this subject, this word proskuneo, to bow down, is found in the Gospels 26 times. People run up and they fall down, proskuneo, before Jesus. And again, this word is very common in the Revelation. 21 times in that book, they fall down before the throne or they fall down before the beast. And in the epistles, watch this now, in the epistles, in the Pauline epistles, it is used only one time. In 1 Corinthians 14.25, when the unbeliever falls down at the, at the force of prophecy as his heart is open, laid open and bare. But watch this. And never, ever, anywhere else in all, at all, in Paul's letters, or Peter, or James, or John, the word is absent. You never see it again. That's remarkable. I go through the Gospels, it's all over the place. I'm in Revelation, it's all over the place. And now in Paul... And Peter and James and John, 
its history. What's happened? And what does that mean for us? That the central word for worship in the Old Testament, prevalent in the life of Jesus, prevalent in the life of the Revelation in the book of the Revelation, is now boycotted by the apostles in their letters. What could this mean? Why are the epistles void of the most important word for worship in the Old Testament, and as it was used in the life of Jesus, and as it was used again in the Revelation? And I want you to see this morning that that is an incredibly urgent question, and a very revealing question to ask that's going to have very practical implications for your life. And I'm going to suggest an answer that is overflowing with significance for you. And for me, as people to whom these letters were written and for the regulation of our worship. Why then is proskuneo missing from all of Paul's letters except for once, missing in James, missing in John, missing in Peter, Why isn't it there in the book that is written for the church to guide us in all things that we need to do that are important to do? And it's the most important word in the Old Testament for worship. Well, the reason is it would not suffice anymore by the time those writers were writing those letters. It was actually inadequate Now that's a pretty big assertion, that this word used throughout the scriptures had suddenly become insufficient to carry the true meaning and the true dimension of worship. How does that happen? Something had to dramatically change for the entire biblical witness to change like this, right? And Jesus actually tells uh, tells us this is going to happen in verse 21. Here's what he says. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So Jesus is indicating that something's going to happen that's going to change something about worship. Something's going to happen that takes worship away from these locations where worship had been happening previously. Now follow me. Proskuneo, remember, it means to bow down. And therefore, in the Gospels, where that word's all over the place, there's also, in the Gospels, a visible manifestation of Jesus Himself. He was present, and people could actually walk up to Him and fall down, and so they used it, right? Amen? You with me? Okay. I'm not sure. But there's something there in front of you that you can see and perceive with your senses and fall down before it. And in the Revelation, where Jesus will be visibly manifest again, and God sits on His throne before which we stand, we will bow down. So there again, there's something you can physically come before and proskuneo before, right? But now... He's not here. Visibly, anyway, He's not here. Nor is anything around us to take His place physically that we would stoop before it. And therefore, the word proskuneo goes 
because Jesus went back to heaven. Isn't that cool? That's amazing. So what are you going to bow down before if it's gone? It's a remarkable thing. And it's worth our noting that in the epistles, I told you those words would pay off, that the epistles with Jesus now, he's gone. They join with Jesus now in a tendency, in in sort of a, a trajectory towards the spiritualization of everything about worship. In other words, proskuneo, we're going to see, will leave the physical realm and enter the spiritual realm. It's no longer outward. It's no longer bodily. It's no longer localized. It's no longer externalized. It's no longer in a geographical place. So it doesn't involve locations like mountains anymore like the woman was asking about. Why? Well, because Jesus, as he hints to in his response to her, lets her know that it's going to become radically inward, radically pervasive in everything. Here's a word to hang it on. Inwardness. It's delocalized. It's deinstitutionalized. It's de-externalized. It's a reality of worship. Because Jesus has left bodily because he had come before in the time of the Gospels and they mention it 26 times, proskuneo in those Gospels to him. And so if you were around then, you could bow down to him, you could worship him, and you would have done well to do so. And so it's in the Gospel, or the Gospel is plural 26 times. Jesus was there in the form of the flesh, but now he's not. And because he was here, but he left, and he told his disciples he would leave, and they're upset at this, remember? And Jesus said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. It is better for you that I leave. What? Peter's like, how can this be better? Because Jesus knew that he was there on earth in the limited form of the flesh, And he'd be returning to heaven in the unlimited form of the Spirit. That's amazing to me. And the effect is, and this is all over the epistles now, the effect of this shift is the whole life of the believer, every bit of it, becomes worship. Stay with me. Because it's no longer associated with getting to someone physically or getting to a mountain geographically It is now that Jesus Christ is in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's with us wherever we are. And to be faithful to this new vision of worship that Jesus introduces to this woman, this New Testament vision of worship, we don't create an identification in our minds that worship is what's happening in a building or on a mountain, or in a particular place. But instead, it is the freedom of the inwardness and pervasiveness of worship everywhere in all things. And I mention the word freedom because that causes worship to have almost nothing 
with regard to form. I mean, you think about the Old Testament. There's all kinds of stuff in there. You do it this way, you do this, you do this, and then you do this. But then you get to the New Testament when it switches to this away from geography, away from institution, and into the spiritual realm. And those who worship shall worship in spirit and truth. And it's very hard to find much in the New Testament regulating how you worship. Now, there's things in there about how you exercise the spiritual gifts and, and what's true and all that, both with respect to whether we worship by sitting in a service or standing in a service while the music is playing, or like when I was on a, a, a missionary overseas and I was in countries where people actually jumped up and down in worship. All that's fine because it's not regulated. There's freedom. What's regulated is that we do it in spirit and in truth, right? So, he does away with it. So let's look again to John chapter 4, verse 20, and we'll see a few verses here again. And of course, uh, she says, our fathers, and you know the setting again, the, the woman at the well in Samaria, and they had this interaction about her adultery, and she shifts the focus of the discussion onto the place of worship. She's taking the subject and asking him a question about the location that worship takes place in. And she says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place. So she's concerned with place, where men and women ought to worship. And this word worship here is, guess what? Proskuneo. There it is. And, and Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming where neither in this mountain Neither in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. Whoa. So you can see what he's doing right off the bat. He's loosening the connection that she has in her head between the concept of worship and geographical place or specific location. Jesus is taking it apart because they don't, they're not going to belong together anymore. Now, as he does that for her, he does that for you and me. He really does. And he is telling us that the hour is coming when outward, and in our case it's already come, localized dimensions of worship are negligible, unimportant, without consequence. And watch now, he makes this point. Neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So, Naturally, we're thinking, well, where then? Where does worship now take place? Verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is. Why is the hour now? Why does he say this? Because he's there. The kingdom is broken in. Jesus has come from heaven, is now there. From the future in Jesus, the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not in this mountain or in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. For such people, God the Father Himself is seeking to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So here's the key sentence. True worship, which, is, which Jesus was anticipating for the age to come, 
that you and I here this morning are sitting in that age to come has broken away from outward forms and more importantly, it's freed itself from limitations. How do we know that? Because Jesus is now here in spirit, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the marks of true worship are that it is broken off from, separated out from its localized limitations, from its outward forms. And the mountain, as it were, is the spirit, and Jerusalem is the truth now. In other words, don't ask me whether it's in this mountain or in Jerusalem. I'll tell you the place. It's in spirit, and it's in truth. And if, you're, if you go about seeking a proper place to worship, go to the spirit. If you go about seeking a proper mountain, go to the truth. The spirit and the truth of the mountain and the place. The mountain and the place aren't here anymore. It will happen in spirit. It will happen in truth. So Jesus just totally strips away from proskuneo any concept or any idea of a place anymore or a localization or, or something that's outward. We see that authentic worship in us personally is in spirit and in truth, and that it provides a particular freedom. That's the longest point, and it's my first point. Authentic worship for us personally. But secondly this morning, authentic worship in Rise Chapel. What are the implications there? What does it mean for us as the gathered church? Well, same idea, but different setting. The gathered church. Now, the setting now uh, that the, the, the church is today can be found back then in Jesus' attitude towards the temple. And for over half of you this morning, I'm going to predict, just from my brain, not from the influence of the Spirit, I'm going to predict this is going to change what you've always understood. The reason was Jesus got so aggravated in the temple and started throwing furniture around. Y'all remember that? <laughs> got a great opportunity for ministry here it appears <laughs> and so Jesus we're going to see about his attitude in the temple and some of the actions and words that he gave simply revolutionized the concept of worship as it moves out of the Old Testament into a New Testament form and ties right into what we see in, in uh, John 4.20 that we just looked at. Because we can shed some more light on what Jesus said in John 4.20 by looking a few pages back in John chapter 2 at what Jesus does and says in the temple, which was a geographical place for meeting with God, right? And the temple, of course, was the center of worship for the Jews. It was the place of the practices and the sacrifices. And in John 2.15, the Bible tells us that Jesus weaves this whip and he moved through the temple driving out the money changers. And if you look at the reason he gives, and this is huge, it is not that he lost his temper. It is not that he was just so fed up with this abuse that he just lost it. It wasn't even to purify the sacrifices. It was, he might have said, I'm getting these people out of here because I want 
right sacrifices. But that's not what he says. What he says is this. And I literally get goosebumps over this. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of what? Prayer. But that's not all he says. And Mark has the Isaiah quote where he says, not only shall my house be a house of prayer, but a house of prayer for what? All nations. So Jesus' point of this cleansing was not to refine the sacrificial acts. That's not what he's doing here. But to direct all attention to an inward act of communion with God, prayer, indeed overtaking the bounds of its Jewish forms and proclaiming it for all nations. Whoa. That's why he cleansed the temple. So then what happens to the temple? What becomes the temple? The meeting place with the living God. The place we're in this morning. That's a pretty big question. Well, here, what we will see Jesus saying and doing is identifying himself with the true temple. Man. And that's exactly what he did back in John chapter 4. The reason this is so important is because Jesus is using the word, you guessed it, proskuneo, the old histahawa. What he does with it is to totally shift its outward and its localized connotation away. And he says something greater than the temple is here. In himself, he will fulfill everything the temple stands for, its whole sacrificial system. It will all be fulfilled in him. Its essence of a meeting place with God shifts off the place and off of the altar. Where? Onto himself. You do not need a temple. You do not need a priestly caste. You do not need a sacrificial system. You need a risen Christ. What did Jesus say? I will raise this temple in three days. And the reason they thought that was absurd is because they didn't realize he didn't mean physically, he meant himself, his, his resurrection. He didn't mean the brick and the mortar and the stone. And from that day forward, you will meet him for worship who already abides in you. Wow! That's the point of his life. And therein lies this radical shift from old to new covenant, from localized to inside to inwardness, in the way we come to God, in the way we conceive of worship. A temple was rebuilt in three days, and we need a meeting place, and He is now it. Not that it will be wrong from this, forward, uh, from this point forward to be in a place where you worship. You can hardly avoid that. Here we are. And when it gives us... A, a, and what it gives us is worship in His literal presence wherever we are, whether we're gathered or by ourselves. And it's just amazing. But what makes worship worship is that it happens in spirit and tr in truth. And what gives us worship is His literal presence wherever we are. And therein lies this shift. And Jesus breaks the connection decisively between any perception whatsoever between worship and an outward, localized form. Because He drives worship 
into you. He drives worship downward inside of you. And he's saying that if it is worship, it is spiritual taking place with you. If it is worship, it is truthful. If it is worship, it is inward. It is authentic and it is real on that basis. That worship now has very little to do with what's going on on the outside. Jesus said in another place, pointing in the same direction, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart or their spirit is far from me. And therefore they worship in vain. So he's saying, although they're going through the right formulas, through the right connotations, because their spirit's not in it, their heart's not in it, it's empty and it's meaningless. So now we are left with Jesus' new word, spirit and truth. And it means that true worship is carried by the Holy Spirit and is happening mainly as an inward spiritual reality. It's not happening as an outwise outward, localized, bodily action. And in truth means that worship always happens when it's authentic in response to a true view of God and is shaped and guided by the fullness of God's revealed truth. Where those are missing, worship simply ceases to be authentic. Now, taking all of this into consideration, It no longer startles me as it did originally that the New Testament is stunningly indifferent to the specific outward forms and places of worship. But because before I had this truth, I could get around certain forms of worship in a truth in a church and get offended or or at least very uncomfortable, right? But that's not the issue, what I'm seeing on the outside. The issue is, what's on the inside? Is it authentic? Is it being driven by spirit and truth? And the New Testament is stunningly indifferent to these outward forms. And the startling fact this morning is that in the epistles of the New Testament, there is, to put it mildly, very little instruction that deals explicitly with corporate worship. What we should look like in here this morning. What we call worship services. Now, not that there aren't any worship services or or corporate gatherings. In fact, Corinthians 14.25, the whole church gathered together. In Acts 2.46, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their home. Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet with one another. But that's not much. And even when Paul addresses the issue of the gatherings, he never does so talking explicitly about worship. Doesn't use those words. And further, our worship has to do with real life. It's 24-7. It is not a, a mythical hour interlude in a week of reality. Spirit and truth is our reality that we walk in and live in and breathe in day in and day out. Worship is living in all that we do and all that we are moment by moment saying, Lord God, I can't choose to do this, but by the presence of Your Spirit and by Your indwelling in me, I can live a a life of worship and I can have the satisfaction in You that You command me to have. And I can stop being strapped down by outward circumstances. Not that those things aren't real, but because Your presence, Your Spirit, and Your truth 
transcends anything I'll ever face on this earth and gives me delegated power from the kingdom of heaven to walk through and over those things that have taken away my joy. That's amazing to me. And when I look at my life, I realize that my worship must be everywhere. And that's why I didn't let that staff member skip chapel. Because we want to provide the most conducive environment for the work of the Holy Spirit in every student's life. And I hope that in some way God uses the words that are being spoken to you to provide an environment for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because when I look at your life and when you look at your life, worship must be everywhere. And that is not a requirement, by the way, it is a freedom. And God gave me that freedom when He came to me in the Spirit. And He came to me in power. And He came to you in power. And because He's with us all the time, that brings us to our last brief point. So not only have we looked at what authentic worship looks like individually as a person, what it looks like for us as Rise Chapel, as the gathered church, but lastly today, this morning, authentic worship for the peace of the city. Because of Jesus' life in you, Believers will sense and experience the presence of Jesus in you literally. And unbelievers will too. That's why Paul is able to say in Romans, I will speak of nothing except what Christ has done through me. Because the presence of Jesus Christ in spirit, in you, literally works through you out to unbelievers. And it works to believers as well. When you're ministering in small groups or wherever you're at, and and to each one of us is given, Corinthians says, the manifestation of the Spirit. The Spirit of God uh, working through us in the literal presence of God for those who we're ministering to. And so, not only that, David tells us in the Psalms that worship is also evangelism. That is, David believed God would draw unbelievers to himself through an authentic worship experience. And God commanded Israel to invite the nations to join in declaring His glory in worship. Zion was to be the center of the world, winning worship. Here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 2. Let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion, and his praise in Jerusalem when the people and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. In Psalm 105, it's a direct command of believers to engage in evangelistic worship. The psalmist challenges, challenges them to make known among the nations what God has done. Verse 1, how? Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all of his wonderful acts. Believers, are told to sing and praise God before the unbelieving nations. And God is to be praised before all nations as He is praised by His people. The nations are summoned together to join in the praise and to sing. Peter tells a Gentile church, but you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And this morning, Rise Chapel is challenged to the same witness 
The same witness that Israel was called to evangelistic worship. And there's going to be the presence of the Spirit here this morning. And as we worship, that fills us with joy, but will fill an unbeliever with exactly what happened in Acts 2. They'll say in the city, what must we do? That's how I got saved. I was among a, a group of believers who were praising God, and the presence of God was so real to me, I don't even feel I had a choice whether or not to accept Christ that morning. I don't know, I may have, but I certainly didn't feel it. Now here's what John 4 does to that, and we're done. In the Old Testament, the center of world-winning worship was Mount Zion. But now, it's no longer connected to a place, right? Amen? It's not. Wherever we worship, we can do it wherever we are. We just do it in spirit and in truth. We have come to the heavenly Zion, Hebrews 12, 18 says, because Jesus has come to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the risen Lord now sends His people out, singing His praises in mission, calling the nations to join the saints and the angels in heavenly worship. And Jesus stands in the midst of us personally this morning, in the person of the Holy Spirit, in the midst of this church, corporately, and seeks the redemption and peace of this city through us. Wow. Because we live a life of God's praises. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12 tells us, even as God stands over as redeemed and sings over us in joy. How many of you all knew that God sings over you with joy? Zephaniah 2.17, you can check me up on that. Worship is the essential part of God's strategy for building your joy, for building your destiny, for transcending your circumstances, for building this church, for you being on a kingdom agenda, for building peace in this city as Christ is lifted high in your life. I always conclude, well, generally conclude most of my prayers Lord God, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, may we live our very lives and take our breath for your glory. Because a life of worship brings us, connects us with the incredible satisfaction in Christ, not only that is available to us, but that God literally commands us to have. Kind of like being commanded to have a good time. But in a holy way. In His presence is fullness of joy. Jesus Christ transcends every circumstance. Jesus Christ transcends every problem. And even in those seasons where the problems are not present, Jesus Christ takes us to a place of satisfaction, of destiny, of purpose, of relationship with Him, of relationship with one another, of relationship with our spouse that's not even achieved or approached any other way. It's all in Christ, and it's all in worship. And we don't have to go anywhere to get there. We're already there. This morning is not about discovering where to go for worship, but it's about realizing and living in and maximizing where God has said, you already are, 
Because Jesus is not here. He's come back in the unlimited form of the Spirit. And that Spirit wants to get loose and happy and on mission within you like you've never imagined possible. And in that will be fullness of joy like we've never experienced before. Pray with me. Father, in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ, may these words of a human be carried by the anointing of your Holy Spirit. May they be applied to each life in this room. May the promise of 1 Corinthians 12 that the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is available for all those who believe apply today as we are not merely challenged by a word or astounded by a teaching, but Lord, transformed by Your Spirit because of Your Word in Jesus' name and to the glory of God. We confess this, we pray this, and we draw our very breath for Christ's worship. Amen.